You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. He came up with the names. They were good times. He came up with the names, and like any good parent, he knocked them around to teach them life lessons. He bent them to see if they'd break. He dragged them behind cars by heavy metal chains. He exposed them to high temperatures for extended periods of time. Sometimes consonants broke off and left angry vowels on the laboratory tables. How else was he to know if they were ready for what the world had in store for them? They were good times. In the office they greeted each other with hey and hey man and slapped each other on the back a lot. In the coffee room, they threw the names around like weekenders tossing softballs. Clunker names fell with a thud on the ground. Hey, what do you think of this one? They brainstormed, and then sometimes they hit one out of the park. Sometimes they broke through to the other side and came up with something so spectacular and unexpected, so appropriate to the particular thing waiting, that the others could only stand in awe. You joined the Hall of Legends. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist and John Henry Days and a collection of essays, The Colossus of New York. His new novel is Apex Hides the Hurt. Welcome to the program, Colson. Howdy. Thanks for having me back. Colson, tell us a little bit about the protagonist of your new novel. What does he do? And tell us, did you talk to people who did what he does? The protagonist, and we'll call him the protagonist because he has no name in the book, is a corporate namer. He comes up with names of products like Tide, Arrowhead, Springwater, and Prozac. And I got the idea for to write about someone like that from an article in the New York Times Magazine about eight or nine years ago that dealt with the naming of Prozac, how these guys, this sort of brand of marketer, they try and find the right syllable, prefix, suffix that will, when put together in the right combination, will make the best name that will make the products fly off the shelves. I didn't talk to anybody who does this. You know, I, I tend to do a lot of, I do more research definitely with more historical books or things I'm working on. With this, I sort of, I read an article about the, in the Times, I read an article on Salon about these guys, and then just sort of made up the rest. So this book definitely, a lot of the fun was sort of making up their culture and how they do things. Names are a really important concept because, in a sense, all language is is just a series of names. So tell us a little bit about some of the reflective energy that you get in this novel between the fact that you're writing about somebody who just creates names and you're writing in language and you're quite aware of language and the power of language. Well, I mean, I guess I tend to, I don't get that abstract about <laughs> what I do or else I'd probably go crazy. When the protagonist comes to the town, the town is called Winthrop, and he discovers that it was founded by freed slaves in the 1880s, and they named it Freedom. To him, that's you know a really sort of honest, corny name that you know he would, you know, would, would be sort of run out of business if he came if he suggested Freedom in some sort of meeting. It's a little too real and too raw for him. There are definitely town names which are actual words: Freedom, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. But this guy, for this sort of character, that's a little too a little too raw and bald uh, and unimaginative. In terms of, I guess, creating these, these the product names in the book, I felt, you know, it didn't seem that hard. I think when I came up with Apex Hides the Hurt, and I think it works as a title, Apex is a, a brand of Band-Aid that the protagonist names, and Hides the Hurt is a slogan for that Band-Aid. It seems like a lot, of the, a lot of the names in the book just came out of like this sort of marketing ambient ether. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, 
we're also so saturated with brand names that coming up with things that worked was you know one of the easier parts of the book, I guess. Tell us a little bit about the setup, what this protagonist is called to do. Well, he has he's had an accident, and he's been a bit of a hermit in his house, so he hasn't performed his job for a long time. And he gets a freelance consulting job, and it is to name a town in the Midwest. So he gets this call, and he's sort of running out of money, and he arrives in the town of Winthrop. And Winthrop was founded by slaves, and a few years after they sort of set up shop, a barbed wire magnate named Albert Winthrop opened up his factory in town, sort of took over, and they renamed the town Winthrop, and the streets then became Winthrop Lane, Winthrop Street, the main drag, Winthrop Square. And that's how things were for most of the 20th century. In the present day of the book, a local boy made good, Lucky Aberdeen, who's a computer guy, has moved his company to, to the town, and he wants to attract new business, and he thinks that the town should be renamed yet again to something that reflects the new economy, the 21st century spirit of capitalism. And he's hired somebody who's come up with the name New Prospera. And when we, uh, when the protagonist gets to the town, all these different factions are sort of warring over what is the proper name for the town. Your protagonist has a very Kafkaesque feel to him. And I, this is something that I've encountered in your fiction before, and even in the essays that you wrote. So tell us a little bit, do you read Kafka before you write? I mean, uh, does this influence hang over you? I have read Kafka, not for, I mean, probably 20 years. I, I, I think his use of the fantastic in the everyday, you know, you find it in his work, in Borges, in Garcia Marquez, and then also I, I think in the sort of hyper-realism of Thomas Pynchon and DeLillo, and I think a lot of people these days sort of have this sort of abstracted sense of the self. He falls into the mode of, like, the nameless narrator that you find, well, in Invisible Man, some Kafka, I guess Camus. And I think he's the one that most falls in line with those guys. He's like an anonymous figure. He's nameless. And there's something I think really sort of interesting. I think something really interesting happens when you open a book and maybe the main character is not described that well. He's nameless. I think the reader starts to do a certain amount of work and create him. And he becomes more of an every every man. And in terms of him being anonymous, I want him to be or not named. I want him to be sort of unformed in a way of like a product or uh, the town that he's about to name and sort of put him on on an even level with with that. There's a sense of separation. Your character is separated from himself, from the world around him, from the people around him. Tell me a little bit about why you chose to do that, how you did that in the prose, and how that plays out a bit in his occupation and in the novel, in the plot of the novel. Here it is, spring of 2006, but I started the book in, in the fall of 2000. And I wrote half the book, and in the, in the original version, he was the master of the universe, sort of at the top of his game, the apex of his career. And when he came to the town, he was still sort of in control and on top of everything. And I wrote half the book in you know the fall of 2000, early 2001. And then after 9-11 happened, I had to put it aside. It didn't seem really very compelling and not very interesting, and I started writing the Colossus of New York, essays about the city. So when I came back to Apex two years later, um, I opened it up, and I really didn't like him or or find him very interesting. And so I had to kind of retrofit him. I had to, like, rewrite the the, the first half of the book so that the accident that he has that makes him go into hermit mode actually had an effect on him. You know, he had to 
I, I wanted to think about before and after an accident and what it, what it does to you and how it forces you to change. And I think that that came out of, I guess, writing about 9-11 or living in, in New York. I mean, there, there's a definite sense of before and after. And so that became incorporated into the book. And in his version 2.0, he was a lot more alienated from uh, his job, which, you know, he's very talented at. He was a, you know, sort of maestro. And he's disconnected from people. And whereas formerly he was still sort of, he was still getting along with the, the rest of society. So for me, a, a lot of the way he turned out was trying to figure out how to make, pick up, how to make this book work for me like three years later after, after starting it. I, I was laughing when you said version 2.0 of him because one of your characters in this novel states, the software magnet states, that nothing's ever finished and that there's always a version 2.0 waiting out there as soon as anything is complete. And, and, he, and he's looking at the world through the prism of you know, tech speak and his sort of very bizarre sort of evangelistic sense of new capitalism. But I, I think in terms of version 2.0 and 3.0, you know, the town, in a sense, is going through a, a new version. There was, like, the Freedom version that existed for a few years, the Winthrop version that lasted for, whatever, 120 years. And now there's a new version of the town. And and I, I think in the same way, the, the narrator is, you know, looking for his new iteration that's on the horizon. You went to quite a bit of trouble to create the history of this town, didn't you? The good thing about being a fiction writer is you can just make stuff stuff up to, so that it, it suits your ends. So, you know, I've been asked, like, oh, why, why didn't you pick a real town? Well, I, if it's a real town, I can't actually make it do exactly what I wanted to do. I can't deform reality that much. So if I, you know, in, invent a town, you know, from top to bottom, you know, at point A, B, and C in its existence, it can, you know, touch upon whatever sort of effect I'm trying to achieve at that point. You talked about this sense of after the disaster. That's really what your character is experiencing, and he's ex- literally experiencing, to a certain extent, a loss of footing. Which <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. He um he he's uh he's had an accident, and that's what sort of brought him low. He had a I, I want the, he's had a toe cut off for various for a very strange reason, and his limp. Uh, very pronounced is, you know, most likely psychosomatic, but it's his lump and he's sort of sticking with it. Tell us a little bit about some of the myths of names. That name, there's a lot of stuff associated with names, the, the cultures that believe once you know somebody's true name, you can control them. Tell us a little bit about, did you research the, the history of the idea of naming things? I guess, you know, my different ideas of, about naming evolved over time. I started with this very sort of flat proposition, what if a naming consultant had the name of town? And then that's not a story, that's a, that's a proposition. So I had to come up with characters and figure out the town, who, the, who was in the town. And during all that work, I moved away from a just sort of flat, I mean, a, a very simple idea of brand names and started thinking about, like, what do personal names mean? What does it mean to name a street, a town? In terms of, like, the you know, and... What is trying to find a name that will make a, a product fly off the shelves, which is like a superficial name, versus someone's true essence and sort of the truth of, of what they are and who they are. I use NPR as a way to talk about the names of God. No matter what you do, no matter what you're writing, if you tell someone you're writing a book about this or that, 
someone's going to say, oh, I heard about that on NPR. <laughs> like, I heard a story about that on NPR. So it seemed like a fun way to sort of get that idea into the book. Um, I don't go into it too much because, I mean, I think I knew I wanted to be sort of compact in a way I was not in John Henry days. So there is a bit about the name of God, and, and if you know someone's true name, you have mastery over them. And that's sort of, I mean, I just drew from what I've read over time. I didn't sort of research it for the book specific, specifically. One of the things you talk, were talking about earlier was reaching into the, the media space where names live. And that's an interesting notion because your character seems to have this ability to reach into, and I think you even express it in these terms, to reach into the platonic realm almost and see the platonic ideal of what the name is and pull it out. And you even have some of the uh, shadow on the wall imagery going in there. Is that deliberate? In retrospect, <laughs> it was all, it was all planned. <laughs> but I, but I, you know, I, I think that's a sort of a natural metaphor for reality. And when when I gave him this sort of talent of naming, I was trying to elevate him from the sort of you know mundane realm of of all of us. And what he finds over the you know the, the course of his time when he his, his naming for the naming firm is that you know perhaps that kind of mastery isn't all it's cracked, cracked up to be. Is he finding the true name or just the commercial name of things? Is he finding some sort of essential quality about something or or, or it's, um, you know, shadow on the wall? So there you have it. You don't use any real product names in this book. You deliberately avoid them. Is this a, a copyright issue or is this a, a creative issue? I guess I was having fun thinking up names. You know, I put them in there. And I guess it's another way of distant, of keeping... Us little, making this world a little distant and a bit of a, a parable, I guess, when every sort of known feature is different and his town, his home city is not named. Um, Winthrop takes place in a kind of floating Midwest idea, or idea of the Midwest. And every sort of real feature of his world, and a lot of that is product names, when that's new, I think it sort of you know takes this sort of mundane story and, and maybe places it into a a, a sort of different, more fabulous realm, I think. That's that's right. This novel, that that's an interesting point because as I'm reading this novel, there's nothing, in a sense, particularly fantastic about it, but it does have the feel of the fantastic about it. And now that I think about it, one of the reasons is is because in so many novels nowadays, the authors will ground things with, you know, product names are going to this this fast food joint you recognize are going here. They're using this product you recognize. And that's a big part of American novels, and that's something that you cut yourself off from. And that probably, certainly, and apparently deliberately, is meant to lend to the um, sort of airless aspect in this novel. Well, I mean, he definitely, you know, we see him for 20 pages and then maybe realize that he has no name. I think there are different tactics I was using to sort of make him anonymous and sort of and nameless, literally, and his world as well. So I, I think the reader has to sort of find their footing and sort of fill in. And what you fill in to this sort of blank slate is your own world, your own experience, your own analog to Drowsitin, which I guess is Ambien or whatever you take. Or, you know, I, I think these non-real product names end up Harkening back to our world, and and I think you know perhaps ironically or strangely, you're sort of more invested because it is a little bit of a more alien terrain. This is a a very funny book, you ha- and you have a it, there's lots of jokes. And, and what I found most interesting was 
because it's also a lot about race lines and, and racial relations. It's in there. It creeps in. And your funniest stuff is your most pointed stuff, is your most savage stuff. So tell us a little bit about writing this book as a, as a humorer. Well, I mean, I think I've always had a very sardonic you know, view of the world when I was a kid. I guess to keep from talking to each other, you know, we got cable very early <laughs> as soon as it was invented. So I was eight or nine, you know, in 78, 79. And I, we'd watch like George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And these guys are just geniuses at sort of getting at the horrible truth of the world in a sort of humorous way. They sort of you know, sneak up on you and reveal something that's very true about the way we live. Um, but it's sort of uh, counterfeited by comedy. I mean, we don't, we don't know we've been punched in the face until they actually do it. So that was my sort of early philosophical training, I think, George Collin and Richard Pryor. And definitely when I wrote articles, when I wrote book reviews and TV reviews, there's always a lot of humor in it. And I, and I guess I've been sort of inching towards being a lot more straightforwardly comic in my, in my work. With The Intuitionist, it's, you know, the humor is very deadpan. Um, I, I think because I was stuck with the proposition of making sort of elevator inspectors important. So... You know, there are, there are like, escalator, just an escalator inspector named Chuck, and he's sort of the butt of everybody's joke. And, but, you know, a lot of the humor in the book is, is very deadpan, which on Henry Days, uh, there's some, you know, a lot more obvious satirical elements and some low comedy and some of the uh, interactions between the junketeers, the hack journalists of John Henry Days. Um, and with this book, you know, I, I did, John Henry Days was so just big. I mean, it had so many different characters and it was such a big canvas. I just wanted to do something sort of short and compact and and funny. You know, hopefully it is hopefully it's funny. I guess you found it funny, so that's you know, at least one person. You know, it was very fun to do that and and just feel like I have the mission isn't as I'm not trying to have a theory of everything with this book. I'm sort of I have like one topic and I'm trying to get at it from a lot of different angles, but not on such a scale as you know the previous novel, and that way it was sort of an antidote to John Henry Days, and and basically, and it, it is fun to be a little more just overt with you know my sense of humor, and maybe have some slapstick or you know have you know some fancy wordplay, and not feel and feel that the structure can accommodate it, you know, as it could not in The Intuitionist, I think. The language in this novel is is beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's it's sanded, spared down. Was this did this spontaneously generate in your mind as you typed or wrote, or was this the result of years of sanding? There was a lot of sanding. <laughs> I mean, you know, as I said, I've worked on it for about you know five years, and I think I mean I I had the voice. You know, I, I started writing and 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 hit on the voice pretty quickly, and I, and I just was really excited that it worked. I mean, a lot of the senses in John Henry days are frenetic, and they're you know they go on for they can go on for like a paragraph or something. And and while you know I, I'm really fond of the prose in that book, I sort of wanted to have a narrator that was just a lot cleaner and just close to the protagonist. And so it was really fun to do. I think I found a lot of guidance in reading my friends' books. I'm not a, I don't read a lot of short stories, but um, I've met Juno Diaz and Nathan Englander over time. I guess because we had the same agents, so we keep running into each other. But um, so I became friends with them, and I was like, "Oh, I should read their books." And you know, I loved uh, the, the prose and and both those books, and and they were both really sort of helpful in finding. A, a, I guess the word I'm using is clean narrative voice for this book. Um, 
one of the things I found you used in this book is there's a lot of kind of really oddball mysteries that that propel the prose, that that propel the plot, like who who is the maid, the mystery of the town's name, which he solves, and, and you know the the character's name. What's up with the toe? You know what's up with this disaster? Tell us a little bit about creating tension in a book like this. Well, I mean, there's not you know. Not incredible much. <laughs> much stuff happens in the book. So how do you create, you know, forward momentum in the in the in the absence of some really sort of intricate plot, as there was, say, in the Intuitionist? There are a lot of minor mysteries. I think that you know will pull you forward. I think the I think the senses are sort of I don't know. I'm not sure if propulsive is the word, but I, but I, but I think the prose is sort of um, clean and linear enough that. You know, that's a way to move people forward. I think he's a mystery. You know, I, I think we only know who he is. And as his backstory unfolds, and we alternate between his his previous life and his present life, um, I think there's a mystery there in terms of who he is. And, and also then in the present of the book, who is he becoming? So, and all those things are, you know, in terms of pacing and how you set things up is just something I guess I've learned over time. You know, how do you pull people forward when you're dealing with, either a lack of a straightforward narrative line or you're dealing with some sort of maybe abstract idea that you're trying to sort of get at and how do you get that from your mind to storyland? How do you get these sort of things you're trying to say into a real story that people want to read and not just, you know, an essay or something? This novel was split by by 9-11. So tell us a little bit more about that and... What tell us a little bit too about maybe what's going to come after this novel and how what the the relationship will be. Well, I mean, uh, there were articles after nine eleven, uh, written by novelists or quoting novelists saying, "Oh, fiction! How yeah? You know, how can fiction live up to the horrible real world? Real world?" And I thought that was it was sort of corny, hand wringing, but I did find that I I couldn't write. I couldn't work on Apex in the months after 9-11. I was just really depressed, and it just didn't seem important at all. I was just more into you know sleeping all day on the couch and not really leaving the house. And I, I started writing the essays in The Colossus of New York in the year before, and I had four. And I think they were a book, but then uh, I decided to just go full speed ahead on writing essays about the city and forget Apex for a while. So there's about two years where I didn't work on Apex, and when I came back to it, I didn't like the character. His struggle was not wasn't really compelling, so I had to take him down a peg, and that was something I could really relate to. I think I had a really sort of complacent view of the world and my hometown, and when I came back to Apex, I started thinking more about accidents and before and what happened, who you are before and who you are afterwards, and 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 what kind of limps you know, limp, we, we all sort of walk around with. What's coming next? I mean, you know, I, I have had these sort of high concept books, but I'm work, now I'm working on a, you know, a uh, more more directly autobiographical story about growing up in the 80s. And I feel I, I've just become more comfortable with each book being more direct, putting more of myself in my books without having um, the sort of guise of a character who's not like me. The writing of the essays bears a palpable influence in this book. There are, in fact, a couple of passages that seem like they could have been in the Colossus of New York. There's the what I call the true names scene, 
And then there's another, the A to Z scene. Tell us a little bit about writing those. And, and did the essays influence that? It's hard for me to step back and say, how does one, you know, how does one book affect the next book? I definitely feel that a lot of the structure of Apex is influenced by being a reaction to John Henry Day's. You know, it's much linear and, and more compact. In terms of what I learned in the essays, the essays in Colossus are very impressionistic. And for the first time, I had no character. So I had to really sort of get a consistent voice. And I think that really worked for, for Apex. In terms of not having the armature of some intricate Rube Goldberg plot, I think the structure of the essays, the very loose structure or non-structure of the essays helped me, perhaps in Apex, feel more comfortable with not having this, you know, an A to B to C to D sort of narrative structure. So that's what, I mean, off the top of my head, I think that's how I think Colossus helped. In terms of the two sections you mentioned about what are people's true names and what the sort of history of this sort of mythological town that is first named A. This is not the town where the story takes place, but a sort of idea of, of how naming works over time. I think the, you know, the sort of short, really short chapters in this book sort of lent themselves to sort of brief examinations of aspects of naming. They were sure enough that they weren't like sort of huge digressions and they're sort of on point and dealing with like the sort of larger theme. And it also ways to sort of talk about naming in a, in a sort of fun and sort of sort of odd off kilter way, and I think those those are sort of I think some of those passages are the, sort of the heart of the book. One of the uh, more interesting things you talk about too is the progressions of names uh, for African Americans. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I mean, you know, uh, colored Negro, Afro American, African American, people of color. Um, I think each generation has to sort of define itself in a new way, and you have to reject what the previous generation did. Um, and and that comes out of just, you know, that's the way people are. And, you know, my daughter, who's like a year and a half, when she's whatever, 25, will have some, her kids will have, her generation will have some kind of kooky name for, you know, who <laughs> we are, what the black community is. And I think that's an act of, of um, sort of self-definition. You can't name me, I'm, I'm naming myself. And I think it happens with the appropri- appropriation of the N-word in sort of casual conversation. You know, it means one thing when a white person says it, another thing when a black person says it. Um, and so sort of reclaiming the pejorative into a kind of colloquial, a colloquial um, sort of jovial address is one way of saying, well, you have your name for us, but we're, now we're stealing it back and your name no longer has any power because we've taken it away. So, you know, what we call ourselves is very important and it's, you know, uh, it says a lot about who we are and what we sort of what we think of ourselves. Indeed, in one point of the book, you talk about how naming implies freedom, gives you freedom. You now you cast off what other, what other people have put on you, then supposedly you're free. Um, whether or not that's how true that is, you know, I, I'm, as usual, I'm ambivalent about the book, or the, I would say the book is ambivalent about if, if you're truly free or not. Well, it uh, certainly um, is ambivalent because on the other, on one hand, you have this kind of the digression about the different names uh, for African Americans, and then on the other hand, you have a digression about just renaming products and, and re- reinventing products as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think at the start at, at the start of the book, uh, renaming is just taking is just examined in terms of pure marketing, and part of what he finds out. 
when he does, does research in the town and meets people and learns about the history, um, whether it's about Winthrop the industrialist or Good and Field the founding the the black founding fathers, you know there's a lot more at stake than he than he thinks initially than he than he thinks when he gets into his hotel room. So that's you know to me is the heart of the book. Tell us a little bit about this novel. Also has a lot of aspects of borders and limits and surfaces. Uh, tell us about how he developed those themes. I was talking with a friend, you know, in the early part when I was just making an outline of the book, and I always start with like an outline before I start writing. You do now. That's that's interesting. So many writers I talk to find the outline just a book killer. Really? I don't know. That's the only way I can do it. I mean, I think you have to know the destination before you start off. I mean, that's how I generally <laughs> plan my day. Uh-oh. And so it seems, um, you know, and it can change over time as themes emerge or become irrelevant or characters become more important or less important. But I, I really have it, I have like 80% of it plotted out before I start. Um, Interesting. That seems pretty normal, normal to, normal <laughs> to me. <laughs> no, like, that's, that's <laughs> you're bucking the trend, trust me, yeah. on this one. So, I was telling a friend about you know the name and uh, the naming business and the town, and he start and ten minutes later he started talking about an article he read in the Economist about barbed wire and you know how it's changed over time and it's not as important now. I was like, oh well, you know, making barbed wire is about making a boundary, keeping your livestock in in the in the in the prairie uh, so they don't wander off, so they don't run away when they're startled by lightning, and it basically you know revolutionized. Uh, the raising of livestock and and help settle the West, but when he was talking about it, I, I just thought, oh, that's a boundary, and it keeps things in in a way that a name does. You know, it it's a container, and you know, it's not a big part of the book, and it's not you know a, a galloping metaphor in the book, but it seemed like that barbed wire was a, a sort of perfect perfect job for the industrialist in the town. One of the things you talk about too are the customers of names. And when you talk about the customers of names, you use a great name uh, from that I first read um, in the writing of a science fiction writer, Harlan Ellison, The Great Unwashed. Sure. I mean, um, in, in, in the narrator's and the protagonist's uh, sort of cocky view of the world and who he actually works for, the consumer, all those guys who buy his products are saps. I mean, he, you know, he's up there, the sort of marketing puppeteer. But I assume that it's not in the book, but I'm sure any time he goes on a bus or, you know, walks down the street, he's like, these guys are just suckers for my names. And they're my, you know, they're my subjects in a certain kind of way. And he does have this, you know, before his accident, he does have this very superior, superior attitude toward other people. Um, when he's actually in the town after his misfortune, he, envy, he envies them. I mean, they are they have a certain kind of they're sort of real living people. Um, and he's, in a way, a ghost. You spend a bit of time, poke a bit of fun at in interviewers in this book. Well, you know, I do, a lot of, <laughs> I do a lot of interviews and a lot of quirks. And, you know, one thing I noticed, or I, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure it's just my own personality quirk, but a lot of times interviewers ask, uh, you know, is there anything that you ha- you, we haven't asked that you'd like to be asked? And it just seems so forced and unnatural. And also, you know, I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll show up and I'll, <laughs> and I'll ask your questions, but I'm not, but I'm not you know, <laughs> there's nothing, I have no agenda except, you know, the book and whatever you want to talk about, about it is fine. So, um, there's a, there's an, so there's an interviewer in the, in the book and he's a shill for the computer magnate, Lucky Aberdeen. And, um, 
I, I guess there was one time I was interviewed for a paper in Germany, and the guy had no tape recorder or pad, and I was like, aren't you going to write this stuff down? He's like, oh, no, it's much more interesting when you do a feature and you don't really take notes or record it. And, you know, I can't be German, but apparently he just totally savaged me and just made up all the, all, all the <laughs> stuff I didn't say. And and I guess, you know, if you don't have the constraint of being recorded, then you can really do that. So, or having any paper record, I guess you can you can do that. So, you know, in the, he's attacked by an interviewer at a weak moment. And, you know, hopefully that works as a sort of um, abstracted, bad interview. You've gone back and forth from writing fiction and nonfiction, and you're also a reviewer. Are you still writing reviews? I, I, you know, I, I made my living as a critic for six years, so I can only write like one or two articles a year, and then I'm spent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> People ask me to do reviews and essays, and I end up doing more essays than reviews just because of, I, I, you know, I, I can, there's, there's a lot more freedom in sort of riffing on, on stuff as opposed to being tied to writing a review. Tell us a little bit, when you write fiction, why do you write fiction? Why does fiction matter to you to write? What is it about fiction that compels you to write and read? Uh, frankly, I just really enjoy it. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm only really happy when I'm working, as I'm, as I'm reminded whenever I start something new or I have a really good day at the computer. So, you know, if something else made me really happy, I guess I'd do that. It's just really what I, what I enjoy. And um, I like thinking up worlds and stories and people and figuring out how they have figure, figuring out how they interact when i start a book and i'm trying to figure out how to talk about certain things and i'm trying to figure out who the character is who will do all this different stuff it's fun it's like it's you know it's a little puzzle you know with the intuitionist i want to write about elevator inspectors okay well they have a department then so i'd invent the, the department and if they have these skills then i have to invent the school and so it, it you know it sort of proceeds in a logical way for me and trying to figure out who these people are, how they do things, is just really fun and interesting. So why is fiction important? You know, I like it, and it pays the bills. <laughs> you seem to like to invent stuff, too. <clears throat> and there's this element of the fantastic that permeates your fiction. In a sense, it almost always reads like science fiction, except with all the science fiction carefully removed. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I talked before about how my next book is I mean, it's probably more realistic. It takes place in the 80s, and it's really more about my experiences growing up. And there isn't, there's nothing really fantastic. I mean, I think, as I, as I said, I, you know, I plotted out. So I, so it's all plotted out. And maybe something weird happens in the last chapter, but it's not a, a huge thing. And, and I think it's within the realm of possibility. But I think what is, what is linking it to my previous work is just the voice is, has a certain kind of, just kind of weird quality to it. There's a sign, there's a kind of, outsider effect that's going on and i think i think if you're a true observer then a lot of the world can be kind of science fiction to you and i think that's you know how it maybe plays out sometimes even when i'm being more realistic your characters do seem to be always a bit outside the world if you write about things you have to step back and so i relate to that kind of character i, I think you know i I'm the kind of I'm the kind of person who on a plane just sort of stares off into space, and that's because I'm thinking about, you know, work or I'm thinking about sort of what's going on around me, and I'm thinking about what I'm going to write next week, and and so, you know, I'm surrounded by people who are doing normal things like reading in books, and I'm thinking about how can I, oh, that's a good observation. Oh, that's how you really describe that, and that is how you know things seem to work sometimes. 
So, you know, I, I think a lot of, a lot of writers, most writers are observers and detached in a sort of way, and I relate, and, and I bring that to my characters for good or ill. You seem to have a great facility for naming things. Did, did you ever consider going into advertising? No, but, you know, I, I, you know, I have to admit that after writing about publicity and PR and John Henry Days and with this book, I have some sort of thing about marketing that I really admire. So, you know, if not, if I hadn't read, you know, Crime and Punishment at a certain time, or if I was more athletic and hadn't read comic books and watched TV when I was a kid, maybe I would become work for advertising. I do, you know, one of my friends, uncles, invented the phrase plop, plop, fizz, fizz. And to me, and that's in a certain kind of way anti-writing, but I, I admire him. I think he came up with, you know, a certain arrangement of syllables that's very evocative and is now sort of indelibly etched into our brains. And so I think there, you know, I think when an ad man sort of breaks through and hits something in our collective American consciousness, I, you know, I, I salute that. Well, you, you talk about this phenomenon too, this idea of names that become things. Xerox is an example and Band-Aid is another example. I think there's something about the name and the product that is new and essential to our lives that could you call, you know, you know, hand me the, the petroleum jelly. I mean, it's Vaseline. You know, uh, let's use the uh, Kodak copier. No, just use the Xerox machine. I mean, it's something that you can't, you know. And those are, you know, those are sort of essential parts of the way we live. And, you know, again, I salute the, I salute, I salute the product names that, which become objects of the world. So we've come down to the end of this interview, and I'd like to ask you to name this interview. Um, another pleasant conversation. <laughs> Sounds like something that you'd spray on. <laughs> you know, yeah. We've been speaking with Golson Whitehead. His new novel is Apex Hides the Hurt. Thank you for speaking with us, Golson. Oh, thanks for having me. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.